welcome to the Time Shifters podcast. I'm your host, Christopher. This podcast takes a fun look at the films of long past, recent past, and the almost present, as well as the events and news surrounding them. I would love to hear from you, and there are several ways to get in touch with the show. Look for the Time Shifters podcast group on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Time Shifters Pod, or you can send us a typed or recorded message to timeshifterspodcast at gmail.com. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and please check us and our fellow podcasters out over on podchaser.com. Please rate and review the show at any of these outlets. All these links can be found on timeshifterspodcast.com. Now let's head to the Timeshifter studio and start the show. Everyone, and welcome back to the Time Shifters Podcast. This is Christopher, and I am here once again with Tom. Tom, how you doing? Welcome back. Good, and uh, always a pleasure to be here. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you here. This has been fun so far, and I think it's going to continue to be yeah, so. Yeah, you're going to have a hard time getting rid of me at this point. <laughs> <laughs> You've got the bug. You're hooked. <laughs> uh, 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 yes, no, uh, for your pleasure, I have built uh, my very own acoustic box to... Uh, to, nice. to improve the quality that I can provide to this wonderful podcast. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm here for you, man. <laughs> <laughs> I am fortunate to have the you know the basement with the uh, the cloth wall. Uh, you know, I've got like the entire basement's an acoustic box for there me. There <laughs> you go. Yeah, no, not so much in the uh, apartment with the laminate floors. <laughs> Yes, yes, and neighbors that are only, what, you know, six inches away. <laughs> it yeah. seems that way at times. <laughs> well, uh, uh, we should uh, get on with the show a little bit here. Uh, there has been a little news. Start with a little bit of the, you know, the sad news. Um, yeah. We lost one who, we lost an actor who's, like, considered one of the last great actors. Uh, Max von Sydow has passed away at the age of 90. I, where do you even begin with this guy? I, know, right? I mean, he has a career that goes back just decades, and he he was a a working actor. I mean, he did anything and everything, everything from I mean, he played Jesus in the greatest story ever told, and he was of course in The Exorcist, absolutely, and he does something like. Flash Gordon. Absolutely. And then uh, all of his character roles in any number of films. I remember him um, from a small part. He played in the Dune movie. Um, right. Yeah. Right. And uh, he even made an appearance in the Star Wars series, the more recent one. He was, I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, oh, um, the McKenzie brothers, uh, Rick Moranis, and I think, was it Jeff Daniels? little canadian comedy duo yeah they did a they did a film called strange brew and he was the burgermeister <laughs> you know i had totally forgotten that i love that film and i, I, I didn't even make the connection that's amazing <laughs> yeah yeah if you if you don't mention him then you know your article's not worth its salt i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> one of his finest i'm sure uh absolutely now, uh, an amazing actor, and he came, he came up in conversation not that long ago when we were talking about the black hole. He was one of the yeah. uh, potential 
uh, actors that was being approached to play the, uh, I forget the character's name now, the big bad there in uh, the black hole. It, Dr. Who, Reinhardt. Reinhardt, thank you. And he mm. would have been phenomenal in that role. No, absolutely. I can't he honestly has, think of anything that he wasn't kind of phenomenal. <laughs> uh, he has that presence, and uh, age only made it even more so. Um, there was never a time when he was on screen where you weren't certain that he was there and in the scene. Exactly. Uh, he, and also showing up in the Star Wars stuff, is where I think like Christopher Lee is another one where he, mm-hmm. you know, he has a presence. When he's on the screen, you're like, well, I'm going to pay attention to that guy. <laughs> yes, it's just a shame they didn't treat him a little better during the Star Wars. <laughs> You know, both of them didn't fare that well. (laughs) Max wasn't on screen, but 10 minutes. (laughs) But I think that goes to, I don't know. I mean, what does that say? Does that say that, you know, they were willing to throw any amount of money at somebody to get them on the screen? Or is that him going, hey, I'm an actor. I'll work, whatever. (laughs) I'll show up for a day. I got to almost think there's a... um hey, my grandkids would get a kick out of the fact that I was in the Star Wars franchise. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, there's probably a little bit of that, too. Yeah, but I mean, even then, um, I even, what I remember most from that scene uh, uh, when he was on was that uh, you just felt like he had been in the series the entire time, and you felt like he was a very important character, and Star Wars did a disservice by having him gone almost immediately. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just a phenomenal actor. Just again, but he's one of those actors that, thankfully, we have just decades of work to remember him by. So, absolutely. A little bit of a better news, maybe, is you know we were talked last time about the bat suit being uh, shown, getting pics yes. of the bat suit. We've got pics of the Batmobile. Have you seen that? That looked. I... <laughs> oh, very, again, we're talking very DIY. Yes, and uh, this goes along with the idea that uh, I think this is supposed to follow more of a year one for, yep, absolutely. Uh, for Batman. So yes. um, I wasn't displeased with it, um, it but it definitely is a, a departure from some of the uh, previous Batmobiles. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Definitely a departure from what we've seen where... Th- We've seen very uh, customized and, you know, uh, unrealistic, actually, in some cases, um, <laughs> or or extremely, I guess, in the Nolan stuff, very militaristic um, Batmobiles. And this one is strictly, yeah, I have a little Dodge Charger and I uh, slap some, you know, matte black paint on it and some red headlights. Yeah, that's a <laughs> Batmobile. <laughs> there you go. Um, no, interestingly enough... Uh, there's a uh, Michael Keaton uh, Batmobile for sale right now. Oh, is there? Fully, fully street legal and working, and it actually is a, it is actually a turbine engine. Oh, nice. Yeah, I got sucked into watching the 30-minute long video that the uh, particular <laughs> builder of this thing actually went into great detail. Actually, it was an amazing vehicle, but... Uh, yeah, uh, the, definitely one of these things is not like the other when you look at the new Batmobile. Right, exactly. Well, and I, I think this will be uh, what I like about um, 
them going back to the year one and everything. This is the kind of thing that this is the sort of thing you're going to find parked outside of a convention somewhere that someone's put together. You know, they're going to oh. find that old Chevy Nova or whatever it is that they used the base it on and, and customized and modified it themselves and turned it into this Batmobile. And like, I, I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to see lots of these, uh, kit car versions <laughs> that yeah. are going to just crop up and they're going to just take the uh, the grainy photos that have showed up online and people are going to show up before people will go to the premiere in right in their own Batmobile. <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> and i'm okay with that actually i am too but uh i do not want to sit behind the guy wearing the cowl <laughs> right <laughs> Uh, could, yeah, down in front. <laughs> <laughs> Can you lower the ears at all? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, excellent. Um, I don't think, <laughs> is there anything else that's been coming up? I think it's been kind of, at least in the entertainment industry, I think it's been a little <laughs> slow the last couple of weeks. Yeah, no, the rest of the world is the stuff that's on fire, and quite frankly, I'd like to forget about most of it, if at all possible. Exactly. This is this is your the escapist podcast. This is <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The only coronas here are beer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm definitely calling in with a case of Corona tomorrow. I think. <laughs> so not funny since I'm uh, essentially shut down for that right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I guess we'll uh, have a short uh, news segment here. We were uh, pretty long on the front end of the last show. This time Ooh. I think we'll we'll cut it a little short. We'll go ahead and take a break and play a promo for another show. And then when we get back, we're going to stay and kind of we decided to talk about the other famous submarine movie. <laughs> This one from 1961. <laughs> We're going to talk about Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Tuning into Sci Fi TV. Hey, everybody, welcome back. I'm Brent Barrett. I'm Kevin Batchelder. I'm Wendy Hembrock. The Viewer's Guide to Genre Television. Welcome, everyone, to a special supernatural focus bonus. Hello, everyone, show. and welcome to The Fae Files, a family of podcasts for the genre loving television viewer. Welcome to Saturday B Movie Reel. Hi, everyone, welcome to The Study welcome Group. Welcome to the top genre characters of all time countdown. And tonight, we're going to be talking about Game of Thrones Season 3. Find us at tuningintosciFiTV.com. You are there when the entire sky catches on fire. The burning Van Allen belt threatening to destroy the universe. You are there in a deadly rain of disintegrating icebergs. Not even the soaring imagination of a Jules Verne could have dreamed of such a fantastic adventure in an atom-powered submarine that defies description. You see the brain of the sub? 
In here is the heart, the atomic motor room. There is more destructive force in this room than in all the explosives used in World War II. With a cast as exciting as the wonders they encountered. Walter Pidgeon. We hope to see sights never before seen by man. Joan Fontaine. I say, the belt will burn itself out. At 173 degrees, it will burn itself out. Barbara Eden. <laughs> Peter Lorre. Sounds like Suko. Nothing is impossible. Robert Sterling. If I'm going to meet your deadline in the Marianas, I need fighters, not fatalists. Michael and Sarah. And Frankie Avalon. With due respect, sir, I think your judgment's been a little rocky lately. Why, you gold-bricking pipsqueak. You are there when the United Nations is thrown into a turmoil. The burning belt must be exploded clear of the Earth's magnetic field. And we have exactly 16 days and three hours in which to do it. Explode the belt and you explode the world! You are there when the frogmen battle a mammoth squid. You are there when Barbara Eden dances to Frankie Avalon's hot rhythms. You are there in outer space to see the earth encircled in fire. You are there when the mini-sub threads a life and death course through the minefields. You are there when the giant of the sea attacks. You are there in the most startling underwater pursuit ever filled. Yeah, this is fun. I mean, we've kind of uh, decided to do a lot of... Um Oh, one podcast kind of leads to another. And yes. this one just seemed like a natural transition. A, it's got a submarine, and B, it's got Peter Lorre. That ties in really well with 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea as a follow-up. Absolutely. And interestingly enough, since I've joined the podcast, uh, with the exception of the introduction episode, um, each and every one of these uh, our movies that we have been going over has been very focused on a ship. Oh, I suppose we, it has. It has. Uh, we did Black Hole that was focused on... Um, oh, God, I've already forgotten the name of the the ship. Uh, but I knew um, it yes. until you started talking about it, yeah. A- absolutely. Uh, so did I, right until I thought I was going to say something. <laughs> Followed by... Uh, right, we go right into... Um, Event Horizon. Event Horizon, which is very much about that ship. And then we go into uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea... <laughs> So, and that's all about that submarine. And now we're we're talking about voyage to the bottom of the sea, right? And the and the SS Sea View. So the yet, Sea View, yet another ship. That's interesting. I hadn't actually made that connection. <laughs> I had connected it a lot with topics and actors. Uh, absolutely, and we've been flowing with that. But then, uh, as I'm sitting there watching the Sea View on the screen, I'm like. We've done nothing but ships. These are all focused heavily. <laughs> the, 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 the vehicle is as much as part of the film as anything else. Yep, good point. Yep. Well, I think we'll probably make a departure of that in the uh, podcast uh, following this one, I think. Well, we'll talk about that more maybe towards the end. Sure. <laughs> so a quick synopsis for anyone who may not be aware. 
The SSC View, an experimental submarine dubbed Nelson's Folly after its designer, Admir- Admiral Harriman Nelson, is undergoing sea trials when the Van Allen radiation belt mysteriously catches fire, creating a ring of flames encircling the Earth. Making its way back to New York to meet with the world's top scientists, Nelson and friend and colleague Commodore Lucius Emery devise a plan to fire a nuclear missile into the belt, overloading it with radiation, which will cause it to explode outward into space. The rest of the scientific community, in particular French scientist Dr. Zuko, disagrees with this plan, thinking it spells certain doom for the world. Zuko believes that once the belt reaches 173 degrees, it will exhaust its fuel source and burn itself out. Nelson and Emery believe so strongly that the wait-and-see approach won't work, they shove off in the sea view with full crew, a shipwreck survivor, and a psychologist who was assigned to, to the shakedown crews to monitor the crew under stress. The fiery sky is not the only obstacle the crew must face as they run afoul of underwater menaces, sabotage, and religious zealotry. The handling of all by Nelson makes the young Captain Lee Crane question not only if the Admiral's plan is really the best route, but also whether or not he's even fit to command. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> and this is very much a dun, dun, dun. Oh, a- absolutely. <laughs> What's your history with this film? Have you, I assumed you'd seen this one before or. Yeah, no, Um. actually, while I was watching it for the longest time, I'm like, I, I was very familiar with the ship, uh, my love of sci-fi and fantasy and all that, and particularly uh, growing up, the model building, mm-hmm. that was one that always kind of came up. So I was familiar with that, but then as I started to watch it, I'm like, do I even remember this film? And interestingly enough, I was talking to somebody else the other day, they hadn't really remembered until I talked about the uh, the mine scene. Oh, um, right. When 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 the when the the sub drifts into the mines, that as soon as I saw that scene, I'm like, I did watch this with my father. I would have watched <laughs> it on Channel 19 back yeah, in the day. Sure, sure. Um, but I'm like, that's where I remember this film from. Um, so yeah, that that's my history. I did actually watch this once as a child with my father. Okay, during those Saturday uh, matinee. Mm-hmm. movies on tv uh but yeah no um i found myself a little stunned at my recollection because that's the scene that got me uh compared to the rest of it and then watching the film itself i'm like this is a bigger story than i remember <laughs> i think uh, very similar to you i'm sure the first time i saw this was probably on 19 on a saturday or sunday afternoon uh we need to fill a couple hours until the you know to the, to the network picks up their time or something like that. Um, I know I'd seen it since then. I'm sure I watched it. I don't know if I ever saw. It. Probably watched it again on DVD at some point. Uh, it's been at least a decade. I'm gonna guess. Man, eh, maybe not quite that long since I watched it last. Enough to kind of forget enough about it. So when I'm watching it this time, there's a lot of stuff that I didn't remember. <laughs> so it's always fun. And one of the things, and we'll get into it, is I forgot the cast that was in this thing. But so, and then like yourself, obviously the sea view I knew more from model than I did from the film. Even though having seen the film prior, it, the the model and multiple versions of the model, I was more familiar with than anything at all. Than anything at all. 
that always makes it kind of fun where you watch these films. And this is one of those films that just comes from this really great time period of the sort of uh, the sci-fi or adventure films that it's just sort of sort of like uh, oh, it's like just eye candy or something. You know, you you know, it's not. It's something you eat that you know it's really not good for you, but you just enjoy it. It's like no, a comfort I, food, maybe you know, kind I, of movie. Yes, yeah, so the, the the well, this is your this is your popcorn movie. Yeah. This is your this is your summer blockbuster of nineteen sixty one. This is uh, a it, it, it it's visually stunning, especially given the age. Um, but yeah, you you don't take it oh, very seriously. You have a lot of fun watching it, and um, yeah, it's just something easy to digest. Yeah, exactly. Goes down smooth. <laughs> yeah, I do think it looks really good for for the time, and I, I do wish. I mean, the copy that I have is not the best of transfers. Um, I would love to see this like released on a really good restored like 4K Blu-ray kind of thing. I think that would look pretty stunning. It would look stunning, uh, uh, but uh, I start reflecting on uh, uh, an old mystery science theater thing where you'd start going, toy boat, toy boat. <laughs> you'd start, you'd start <laughs> seeing the strings a little bit more. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I, I think 4K could reveal a few things. Yep, a few that, flaws. Uh, that maybe, maybe you don't want reveal, but uh, <laughs> I think it'd still be pretty fun. Yes, ex- absolutely. Now, I mentioned uh, the cast. Do you want to talk about the cast, kind of go into the cast first, or is there anything else you wanted to, to hit on before we, we get into it? No. Well, let, let's, I, I, I love our format of uh, let's, let's get into some cast, and then we'll let it evolve from there. Because right. uh, uh, there are some elements of the story and, uh, and what I thought and felt that we'll get into a little bit later. All right. Well, for 1960s, this is what you would call an all-star studded cast. Absolutely. Starting out with Walter Pigeon as Admiral Nelson. Uh, I knew him best from um, uh, Forbidden Planet as Dr. Yes. Morbius. I, that's yes. kind of like the role I associate Walter Pigeon with. I, I, it's probably doing him a disservice because I know he's done other things. <laughs> sure, absolutely. But that's a standout. And it's actually kind of funny. My memory of him from the last time I watched this film was that he phoned this in, that he was like, <laughs> wasn't sure why he was there kind of thing. I didn't get that impression this time watching it. I actually really felt like, oh, he's actually putting effort into this. I don't know where I got that impression from before. Having not seen this for probably 30 years or more, um, <laughs> um, I know for a fact that... Uh, I didn't have really any expectations going into watching this again. Um, so watching him in the role, I, I, I actually found him to be uh, very serious, especially since the character that he had to play was walking a serious line. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And, and I think he very effectively pulls off the, you still aren't really sure whether he kind of, to get to the spoiler, he ended up being <laughs> right. He could have just as easily been wrong. He could have easily been wrong. And even though that he was right didn't necessarily mean he didn't kind of lose his marbles along the way. Right. I, and I f- felt like he very effectively did that. And we'll get into this later, though. The, the, even though you did, uh, you had that experience 
that that experience the whole way through where you weren't entirely sure is he sane is he a genius is he losing his mind from being under water for so long <laughs> what what what's his deal but when you get to the end a little dissatisfying because there's not really a whole lot of release there. <laughs> <laughs> good point yeah in some ways i think he he does the character of admiral nelson reminds me a lot of morbius so maybe it's not too much of a stretch between the two characters uh they both kind of have that same um I'm a little better. Moral authority. Oh, yeah, yeah. Air of authority, and I'm a little better than you, and I know best, so trust me and just do what I say. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And he he wore that moniker very well during the movie. Yeah. It was effective. Now, another... We'll start with just the big names, um, which are kind of in the order that they're kind of uh, credited, I believe. Joan Fontaine mm-hmm. makes an appearance. Is Doctor yep. Su- Susan Hiller? Uh, she plays. She's the psychologist that's been, you know, assigned by. I guess uh, I don't know if they ever call it the United Nations, but I definitely get the feeling it was something along those lines. Yeah, yeah, it was at least a pseudo version of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Barbara Eden, who of course everyone knows from My Dream of Jeannie, again. 1950s, 1960s, everyone knew Barbara Eden here. She's a little maybe underused. I think she's cast because of the name. Uh, I think uh, 90% of her lines are, Lee! (laughs) Typical 1961 treatment of a female character. Right. um, Yeah, she she was there to have the, the girly, squeamish reaction to, like, everything. Yeah, yeah. And they... I mean, she's the secretary. She's always screaming at something or high-pitched or being very derogatory to her man. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting dynamic, though, with her being the secretary to Admiral Nelson, but... uh, Also the the fiancé fiancé of the captain? Yeah. A little more depth in character development. That could have been super interesting... The fact that she had to straddle the line between these two very important men in her life. Uh, exactly. But we didn't have time for that. No, That's not no. what this movie was about. But there was potential. Oh, yeah. There was definitely, I think, if this was something that, that was filmed even 10 years later, uh, definitely if it was filmed 20 or 30 years later, you would definitely have her trying to figure out where her loyalties lie between the two men. Yeah. In fact, she'd have probably been more of a pivotal role, like, how she goes, so goes the rest of the movie. Right, right. But we didn't get that. No, unfortunately <laughs> not. Uh, if we do, as I said before, we do get some more Peter Laurie here. Uh, again, you know, he's just fun to watch and listen to. He has a couple really great lines in this. One of my favorites is when he's sitting around. They're in the big meeting at the United Nations or whatever you want to call it. And Dr. Yeah. Zuko is talking or whatever. And at one point... Um, Peter Lorre's character, uh, Commodore Emery, just kind of blows up at him. And and Nelson tries to calm him down, and, and Peter's like, oh, that guy bugs me. <laughs> it's just this great little weird aside <laughs> line. It's just, but it just makes you laugh. It does, uh, yeah. And again, he was kind of a, a bit... This was not probably one of his finest of roles. No, uh, no. He was... He he was definitely there because he was Peter Laurie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Uh, yeah, no. I, I, to even call him a sidekick was would be an overstatement of uh, of that. <laughs> he was. Uh, other than those uh, those fun lines and lines that Peter Lorre is very good at uh, delivering on, he didn't have much presence in the film. No, unfortunately not. Yeah, he was one of these. He was his character was just there to. Whenever he did say something, it was usually a good line, or it was it was well placed. There was a little bit of sarcasm or a little bit of humor. Um, but other outside of that, yeah, he was just sort of a fixture. It's just furniture, maybe. <laughs> well, uh, uh, and and the thing, and this is I, a, a combination of my my prior Navy background and just me picking up on details. But he was there to be Admiral Nelson's smoking buddy. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Those two were lit up all the time. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. It was becoming insane. <laughs> Yeah, I'm pretty sure on a nuclear aircraft or a nuclear a submarine, uh, they typically in real life keep the smoking down. <laughs> Interestingly enough, uh, because of watching this film, I literally went and and searched to see when or if ever you were allowed to smoke aboard a submarine. Believe it or not, that got cut off in 2010. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. Uh, was there something about maybe you had to wait to the submarine surfaced and you could like go out on deck or something? Or I didn't get that deep into it, but apparently you could smoke aboard a submarine prior to 2010. I'm just just wondering if the uh, the smoking room looked a lot like a tor- torpedo tube. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I. I just can't, I can't, uh, to, to use the term, I can't fathom that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm here all yeah. week. It was probably fine. He just had to open, you know, you just had to do it just with the screen door closed. Um. <laughs> I was waiting for a submarine screen door. <laughs> <laughs> now playing uh, Captain Lee Crane is Robert Sterling. Uh He is an actor I knew nothing about. He is the one on here that I... Yeah. Uh, other than I, I know he did a couple um, appearances on some television shows where kind of like shows that I watched and I was like, mm, yeah, I've probably seen him in that kind of thing. But not mm-hmm. anything that really stood out to me. Although he's been a, a prolific actor. Uh, it's just nothing that I've if I've seen it, he's kind of forgettable in it. He's just sort of like one of those uh, blend into the background kind of kind of guys, I'm afraid. For me, anyway. Yeah, uh, yeah, character actor, yeah. totally. It just, uh, yeah, scrolling through some things like, yeah, it, it's all TV, um, Fantasy Island, Simon and Simon, uh, <laughs> uh, Ichabod and Me, Twilight Zone, stuff right. like that. Um, yeah, interestingly enough, uh, that seemed to be a big part of most of the cast. That's um, true. You got your really big heavy hitters up top there with uh, Pigeon right. and Fontaine and Eden and Lori, and then everyone else is kind of like, oh, well, our budget is shot as far as the casting goes, uh, so get who whoever we got. This was an Irwin Allen production, so I'm guessing he had a lot of ties with television casting agencies. Yes. And I'm sure that's where a lot of, that's probably a lot of the resource that he dwelled or um, uh, pulled on. 
And you're about to get to one um, of the actors in particular that uh, his presence there was interesting. uh, And his voice carries through no matter what you've ever been in. Yes. And that, that would be Michael Ansara. Yes. Yes. Uh, I think probably know him best. Well, I think I know him for many things. Uh, he's one of, like you said, he's this, you know, one of those character actors. He shows up in a lot of stuff. I knew him probably best from, you know, Buck Rogers, the Buck Rogers series. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I'm almost positive. He was in, uh, he was in that. I believe he was, um, uh, Oh, what the heck was her name? The uh, the main baddie lady in uh, Buck Rogers. I think he was like one of her... Uh... Uh, he was Kane. Kane, thank you very much. Yes. Which is interesting because in Star Trek, he was Kang. <laughs> he was a Klingon. He played a Klingon. Oh, he did. He played a oh. Klingon. I completely um, forgot about that. And then only because I, I have been... Well, I tried to recently start uh, rewatching the Babylon 5 series. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then Amazon took it away from me. Ouch. <laughs> yes. Uh, but uh, he, uh, in like the first season, he made an appearance as a Technomage in the, oh, the series. Oh, right. Yes. And then where I know the voice most from and why I said voiced... Is uh, he was Doctor Victor Freeze through the entire Batman the Animated and Batman Beyond series? Ah, uh, you know I didn't even realize that because you know even in the animated series they do put a little bit of um, there's a little reverb in the voice. Al- yeah, they they alter his voice just a little bit, but oh my gosh, that they, they could have not done that; it would have still worked. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, and that. And, and that was what I noticed. Like, um, I don't know that I paid attention to the man on the screen as much until I heard him speak. Mm. And then when he spoke, I'm like, I know this man. And he ha- and given the actors that were available in this film, uh, and and what I'm mostly amazed by him is that uh, he did mostly TV stuff. Right. Yeah. But he has such a presence. He could have been so much more. Yeah, he's you. You wonder why his career went the direction it did. I mean, I don't know if anyone that goes into acting and just thinks oh, I'm just going to be a TV character actor and that's all I'm going to do. I'm not going to shoot for the big movies or anything, right? I, but you know, he could have. Even if he was a career, maybe it was just a matter of him. Well, except that he did. I was going to say maybe he didn't want a career of playing the heavy in films, but he goes on to play the heavy in television. So Right. (laughs) But no, I mean, we just had the conversation about Black Hole and all the actors that came to be available for Dr. Reinhardt. Right. Um, I could easily have seen him in that role. Absolutely. Especially with his delivery. Yeah, I love... He's kind of one of those actors where you kind of wish he would do like some uh, book on tape kind of thing you know? <laughs> absolutely I'd listen to anything he had to say yeah yeah a fantastic voice uh, and, and fantastic delivery he knows how to use that voice yeah and he plays it, it, well hear that you find maybe a few flaws in in this film <laughs> yeah now while we're speaking to his presence and his voice uh, yeah the the character that he plays in this particular one is a bit 
off-putting. <laughs> well, the character, what he turns into, I think, works really well for him. He turns into, as I was saying, you know, kind of the religious zealot who decides that this the whole the earth is going to die, and this is the you know this is God's will, and so he's he wants it to happen. He wants to let it happen because he feels like this is man's punishment and all this stuff. And that works for the actor. But the fact that he's supposed to be a scientist that they found after being shipwrecked, you know, on their way back from the North Pole or wherever they were. It's like, well, that's... Yeah, an, they were at the Arctic. Yeah, the, the, that's an interesting turnaround. You know, an awfully quick turnaround for a man that's supposed to be a scientist. Well, and it's a tur- it's a very fast turnaround for a character that we have no context for. Exactly. Yeah, we we find him floating on the ice. Uh, he's in the with sick his bay. Dog. Yeah, with his dog. He's in the uh, he's in the sick bay. He's only really conscious after they've effectively stolen the sea view and, <laughs> and and took off away from New York. And they're like, "Oh, sorry, you're you're stuck with us." I'm like, and he's in the next time we see him he's talking to the crew about you know getting everything getting their affairs in order with their maker we're like wow (laughs) that came from where welcome aboard (laughs) (laughs) yeah no uh yeah and and clearly he was there to be a disruptive influence to the um he was to be that uh that that religious overtone in, in a in a sub full of intellectuals that are on their own heretical adventure to uh, to dominate their will over everybody else. Right. Yeah. Unfortunately, his character, like you said, was there to kind of put this extra thorn in the side of uh, Nelson and Crane, and because the script said so, he was one of the because <laughs> the script said so characters. Unfortunately. <laughs> yes, unfortunately. And they had a, again. They, I think it was one of these things that you know the writer said, "Okay, I, I want this guy in here that does this whole religious aspect. Well, how do we get him on board?" Uh, shipwreck. Sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> why couldn't he? Why couldn't he be just been a member of the crew? That would have worked better. It it really would have, uh, and it would have also given him more of a, a tie to the crew to have the conversations he's trying to have. I mean. Um, I just don't see a, a military crew of any kind having this random stranger and them him able to hold court in the uh, yeah. In, and it would it, yeah. it would help too because you know towards the end he apparently has the entire run of the ship, including the armory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, security's not real high on the sea view. Apparently not. <laughs> And so, again, that would have worked out better if he had actually been a member of the crew or even an officer. He could have definitely been carried himself as an officer in the crew. Maybe not a high ranking, but he could have been an officer. Heck, you could have uh, made him a chaplain. Oh, or that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) How how I mean, how how much more it was so obvious. That's why I wasn't seeing it. Hey, I know, right? Uh, but yes, uh, having chaplains aboard ship is a it was has always been a thing. So, yeah, that would have been an obvious choice on and, and a much better way to uh, have that effective relationship between him and the crew. Yes, especially in in what is essentially uh, the sky is on fire. Uh, we are living the day, end days. Uh, he would have been far more effective. Now the last. 
uh, well, not the last cast member, second to the last cast member I'll mention, is kind of the elephant in the room on this one <laughs> and is what gives us the most unfortunate uh, opening theme song to a film I think I've ever heard, <laughs> is Frankie Avalon. Yes. Now, he's at, like, the height of his music career at this point. And this was definitely stunt casting. This was, okay, we've got this little action-adventure, sci-fi-ish kind of film, but how do we get the kids? <laughs> yes. Put Frankie Avalon well, on the poster. Well, yeah, because let, let's face it, this is a fairly aged cast for the most part. Yeah. I mean, Barbara Eden aside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but... Uh, yeah, you're lo- looking at a bunch of grumpy old men for the most part. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, let, and, and as you mentioned, the music, uh, they give him a, a, the first time you even meet the character, he is, uh, he is playing music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and, and Barbara Eden is dancing yeah. provocatively yeah. <laughs> on board a ship. It was 1961, yeah. Well, and 1961 on a submarine that would have never dreamed to have women aboard at the time. Right. So, so of course, if we're going to have women on board, let's make them go-go dancers. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that was, um, it's honestly one of those moments, the, the movie begins and that song starts. I'm thinking, I wonder how many people turn it off <laughs> before it even begins. And I know we'd probably get into the music uh, of this, but uh, since we're using Frankie Avalon as that gateway to it, I have to just say, one of the things that didn't work in the film was the music. Mm. Um, Considering the seriousness of the overall story, I mean, this is the end days for the Earth, and... The music was just always a little far too playful. Mm. They're having serious moments and everything's. Yeah, it's a little it's a little too uh, beach blanket bingo for my taste. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you got Frankie Avalon, I guess. Absolutely. Uh, I'm sure uh, if they could have squeezed it in, Annette Funicello would have been a mermaid. Yeah, well. (laughs) <laughs> maybe maybe they couldn't they decided that they couldn't make uh Captain Lee Crane that young but if they could have <laughs> they did cast him as supposedly the youngest submarine captain in history absolutely uh but, but i guess they could, they figured they they had to there was a there was a line you know <laughs> that they couldn't yeah. bring it down anymore had they been able to do it yeah i think uh it, maybe that would have been Avalon and yeah, Fudicello would have been Barbara Eden's character <laughs> And then it gets turned off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then it may not have been as popular as it, as it, uh, as it turned out to be. Right. Uh, honestly, it, you're talking about, you know, the music seemed a little too chipper and everything. That's something I would slight this film on for sure. Uh, call it uh direction or uh production value or whatever is the whole thing is way too well lit for a a topic that should be much darker Uh, absolutely and i gotta stay up saying absolutely geez Uh, (laughs) you ever catch yourself saying the same word over and over again but no I, i completely agree that uh that 
the seriousness of what was supposed to be going on versus the the lighting, the tone of the music, uh, even in some cases, um, the attitude of the people that were on board, like as much as he did a good job uh, carrying Nelson as the uh, as the intellectual who was bent on it, it always kind of had a little flip to it that uh, that it was a little lighter. Uh, this is a guy that is seriously trying to save the world, and he is damn sure he is right, but he's kind of okay with whatever the heck's going on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there were, there is a sort of a, a sense of agency missing from just about everybody. I mean, this is supposed to have the same seriousness uh, as, uh, like, I'm liking it to uh, the hunt for Red October. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, you, this is supposed to be a very, we, we're being hunted. Um, I think we are on the path to do what will save the world. <laughs> And yet, even the battle with the submarine that's chasing them comes off kind of goofy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and they even, and it's it's really odd, and it feels weird when you've got this movie that is taking everything in, in a fairly light approach. Even when it comes to, like what I was saying, with the direction, with the fact that this submarine is apparently lit by arc lights or something, because there is like not a shadow to be seen. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, there is no dark places anywhere in the submarine. There's, it's all bright and roomy, you know, because it's a huge sub. So everyone's got quarters. I mean, even the smallest quarters are still enormous. And so it has this light and airy feel. It's well lit. And then they touch on the subjects of a crew member volunteering for what could be and what ends up being a, uh, a suicide mission. Yeah. And they sort of deal with it well with, um, well, he knew the risks. Next scene. Like, wait, what? Right. That's it? <laughs> and, and, and that's why the mind scene actually sticks with me. Because that, that, that was that one really serious moment in the film. We have, we have lost power from our generator. We are now, we are now diving blind. Um, which is incredibly dangerous, and they got themselves in trouble. They're in a minefield, and if it weren't for the big picture window at the front of the <laughs> of the submarine, they'd have never known they'd have hit the damn thing. Right. Uh, but they know they find it out just in time to stop. They decide that they need to cut themselves free, and and then in the process of doing that. Uh, one of the youngest members of the crew, plus one of the most seasoned sailors on the crew, they go out to cut them free and die in the process. And the scene up to that point, and when they, they die, is super serious. Absolutely. Like, right. But then and it's Then left. you get back to their reaction, and it's like, yeah, that'll happen. Let's go. Right. <laughs> And it's very unfortunate. I mean, because they build up these characters too. They, uh, we get introduced to a seaman Jimmy Red Smith, <laughs> and it turns out mm-hmm. he's the son of someone that Nelson and uh, another uh, uh, big muckety muck that was uh, touring the boat knew or served with. And so you're building this up. And you honestly, when you you see that scene, you're thinking, "Oh, here's a guy that's going to die." But yeah. 
and he does. And then it's like, yeah, that's a shame. Like, wait, you knew this guy. You know his father. Is his father still alive? Do you have to answer to your, you know, to this guy now that you've sent his son out on this mission? Um, it, everything's just sort of pushed to the side. And in some ways, it's kind of written off with Nelson saying, yeah, but there's a, a bigger picture. There's a bigger, you know, problem we got to deal with right now. And that's why he's kind of like throwing everything to the side, but it doesn't always come across that way. Yeah, and, and that's where uh, whether it be uh, some fault in writing or fault in uh, how they paced the scene, uh, but there there is a way to get through that that would have come off so much more satisfying and a lot more emotional. Like I could get that Nelson could see past that. Yes, this is terrible, but we have a bigger, we have a bigger problem here. Mm-hmm. And if, if we, there, there was a moment to have an actual conversation about the, the seriousness of what they're in. And because this is supposed to be a fanciful fun film, they don't have it. Yeah. They have scenes, they have lines. I mean, that is one of the things that the uh, captain crane He's the one that's constantly going, he's the one that's seeing these people die. He's seeing these decisions being made that now he's questioning whether they're the right choice or whatever. And he confronts the Admiral with it, and the Admiral dismisses him almost with with a line or two, and then that's the end of it. Right. Now, that continues. I mean, Kane, or Kane, I got Kane on my, Crane. (laughs) Crane still continues. I mean, every time one of these situations comes up, it it kind of builds and builds for him to the point where he actually feels like he has to take over the ship. He has to remove the Admiral from command. And you're like, okay, that makes sense. That's good. But I wanted a little bit more between him and Nelson. Especially when you got someone like Walter Pigeon, who can hold a conversation, who you want to have hold a conversation. Because, again, you're talking about someone that can really speak to, in a manner that you're kind of like, could you just read this birthday card to me? I mean, and, you, <laughs> and, and, you, and you don't really get it. Not enough, not to my satisfaction anyway. It still all comes across as a little too flippant. Yeah, it's all a little flip. Um, and, yeah, and it's just... Unfortunately, it boils down to actors reading lines as opposed to acting the scene, mm. feeling the scene. Uh, yeah, like you're describing. There was so much opportunity to have an actual um, debate, uh, an intellectual, a spiritual, uh, uh, a visceral debate about how they feel about where they're at in this. You could... if. If Lee is that hung up on these, you would think he'd get in his face. What are you doing? Why are we doing this? Why do you think you're right and everybody else is wrong? There was an opportunity to have a real head-to-head conversation. We didn't get it. Right. Now, and maybe maybe it's a matter with, you know, we're talking about the writing. And the writing, it was written, co-written, uh, and it was directed by Erwin Allen. And we know him, of course, best from his TV work. Uh, we're talking, you know, Lost in Space, The Time Tunnel. Um, and he'd go on to Land of the Giants. And he would go on to uh, to create the Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea television series a few years after this film. 
And this, so this was fairly early in his career. And I think maybe this is just a sign that he was really destined to write for television versus writing for uh, big movies. And write for television in that era. Yeah, exactly. Uh, where lines are throwaways in some cases and we're to have a beginning and middle and end in a very tight timetable. Mm -hmm. So, uh, speaking of the TV series, I myself have not actually ever seen it. So, um, you said you've had a little experience with it. Where does it play in this story? Does it pick up from where this movie left off or does it retell the story a bit? No, I think I, I, if I remember correctly, it's been a while since I've watched the uh, early episodes, but I think it's sort of a continuation. I don't think it retells okay. the story. It is completely recast with the exception of one character. Uh, in this film, it's a, a Seaman uh, Kowalski, who is played, mm-hmm. played by Del Monroe. He goes on to play the same character in the series. Well, that's fantastic because it was an incredibly memorable character. <laughs> well, he was the one that kind of led the group that decided to leave the ship and uh, and and try their luck on the oh, uh, on the yacht. Yeah, <laughs> the the one he got a couple of good speaking lines and he's out. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, but yes, he's the only one that carries over to the uh, to the series. The series is recast with uh, Richard Basehart as Admiral Nelson. Oh, God, I'm having gypsy flashbacks. (laughs) Richard Basehart, Richard Basehart. And then um, David Hedison goes on to play Captain Crane. Uh, David Hedison, you remember the movie The Fly? When was the last time you saw The Fly? Oh, it's been a long time. Love to revisit that. Yeah, yeah, and, and you should. He plays a scientist who turns into The Fly in The Fly. Okay, that's awesome. Uh, he he's done a lot of other uh, uh, movie roles te- in television as well. And in fact, I think he was in a James Bond film. If I'm not mistaken, he was um, the CIA CIA guy that shows up occasionally in uh, with James Bond. Uh, lighter, lighter. I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Live and Let Die, License to Kill. Okay. Yeah, Felix Lighter. Yeah. That, that, so yeah, he so he shows up yes. in, the, in a, bond, a couple of Bond films. He's again, he did a lot of television, and I actually like him better. If you watch any of the series, I actually like him better as Captain Crane than I do this original guy. Um, yeah, I, Walter Pigeon is is fantastic. I you know I I don't think uh, Richard Basehart quite holds a candle to Walter Pigeon, but he does a pretty good yeah. job. But yeah, it was Erwin uh, Allen who has all these great sets that it was done for the movie. And so they were able to reuse those for the series. So as far as looks, the look goes, it just continues on and carries over and everything's almost exactly the same as you see it here in the film. As is typical with the Irwin Allen series, it starts out a little more serious. Uh, the first couple seasons are a lot more sort of cold war cloak and dagger kind of stuff. And then as the series progresses, much like lost in space does, it gets to be kind of fanciful creature of the week kind of thing where they're suddenly, you know, coming across yet another underwater creature menace that, you know, tries to (laughs) destroy or take over the sub kind of thing. The secret world under the water that we don't know. (laughs) Uh, Exactly. 
But it's a series that uh, I won't say it's something that you need to rush out and see, but you might find it interesting to check out. Having now having seen the film, and just do a kind of a compare and contrast a little bit. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to look into that. And not to mention from the model, going back to the models of the stuff, I know there's like a retooled yellow uh, submarine of some the kind, a smaller flying vessel. sub. If you want that one, you got to wait till season two. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I, I got to put in that kind of time. <laughs> yeah, praise, but you can just skip ahead. He's a, that's the beauty of the the time that this television series came out. It is it, it is just you know, every story is very self contained, so you don't need to worry about missing anything. If you want to just you can dive in anywhere. Ah, uh, the joys of formulaic television. Uh, exactly. <laughs> and, and and that's why uh, even the even this movie uh, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, this nineteen sixty one, uh, that. It has that feel that uh, that the, the the material of the time, if it's going to be pop culture styled stuff, not really serious um, artistic work, um, it's all pretty throwaway, formulaic, and uh, predictable. You know what struck me, especially after having watched the series a little bit. Probably I've seen the series more than I've watched the film. Is yeah that this felt like the entire movie felt like one of those movies where you have a series and you stitch together several episodes to make a film. Yeah. Because every 45 minutes or so, there was a new, like, oh my gosh, it's a giant squid. Oh, okay. That's, that's done with, oh my gosh, it's a bomb. Oh, you know, 45 minutes later, oh my gosh, it's sabotage. You know, (laughs) Uh, and to that to that point, uh, that's kind of how it felt for me. Aside from how you're describing it, it to me it felt like the TV pilot. Um, we crushed it all of this into a two hour span, and then oh, we got approved for the show, so we'll scrap the pilot and we'll do the show in this way and then we'll take elements that were in that top pilot and put it back into the series here and there. Yeah, There was a good three years difference between the film and the series, but maybe that's not too outrageous when you consider that they have to recast and, and film. Um, And this was, you know, this was a very popular film, which is what allowed him to do the series. And the series ran for four seasons, which is not bad for early 60s or mid 60s, I guess, by that point. No, not at all. That's an unheard of run for that kind of time frame, especially for uh, for a pop culture uh, action adventure Mm -hmm. kind of thing. So you figure you figure uh, at the time um, the requirement for the effects and all that, that that's. Big budget right. TV, and they were able since they already had the film, and they hit. They ended up using a lot of the footage, uh, especially like the footage of the sub, you know, go, traveling through the water and everything. That became stock footage for the series. Mm-hmm. So if if you got a good eye, Absolutely. yes, there is minor differences between the models between the you know the television and the and the movie series. But if you got a good eye, you can spot them. You know, like oh wait. The TV series doesn't have little running lights at the end of the fins, but here's there's but suddenly you see running lights at the end of the fins on one scene or something like that. So they'd reuse a lot of the underwater footage with the submarine. But you know that's a great cost savings technique. So why you know I, I don't knock I'm not knocking them for it. 
To be fair, uh, the sea view was a beautiful looking. It is actually kind of nice. It's kind of it's it's beautiful in it in its simplicity. Absolutely. Uh, okay. Uh, okay. For for all you listeners, please go back and re-listen to everything since I've joined. We're going to call it a drinking game. Every time Tom says absolutely <laughs> drink. <laughs> and now I will try to stop. But anyways, um, what I liked about uh, the sea view um, is that it, it had this kind of manta mm-hmm. quality to it. Uh, the way they flattened it out at the bottom and had it flare out from the side, bigger right. at the front, tapered to the back, ha- had a very unique, very aquatic look. It looked like it could be a sea creature as much as it could have been right. a submarine. I, it was very beautiful. I, I enjoyed that. Now, uh, I'm going to take this moment, though, to make the comparison to what we watched previously with the 20,000 Leagues, since they insisted on another squid. <laughs> yeah. Well, this one was a, apparently a, substance. Yeah, now, come on. Give, they didn't copy. This was an octopus. <laughs> Which one? Uh, there was an octopus that uh, grabbed onto the front end, and they shot right. it. Oh, they, there oh, was they, the they, diving you're right. scene. They did to get attacked by a squid underwater. I forgot. And there, there was. Come on, man! I uh, get your get, get your terrible fake squids right, uh, but because uh, in comparison and contrast, like the squid uh, from the Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, that thing, um, it moved, it attacked, it grabbed, and all that, and that underwater battle with the uh, the squid was, um, it wasn't terrible but it was clear this thing it never moved <laughs> the the tentacles reached out and did things but the body of the thing was clearly <laughs> bolted to something because <laughs> that wasn't yeah. going anywhere they they clearly had that thing anchored to the side of the pool that they were working to, to give you an, an, an idea of how exciting i found the squid attack underwater is that it was actually i chose that moment to check some stuff on my phone you know that's when i started looking at notes <laughs> and stuff on my phone because i'm like oh i've seen this bit yeah <laughs> <laughs> there this has been in other movies and done well. <laughs> exactly but hey this was our big moment um uh for our um uh, uh, what was his name? Alvarez, uh, our religious uh, nut who somehow got invited along. Uh, well, he, to, he was to, a scientist and a diver, and they needed the hand. So, sure, but not not a member of. I would, crew. yeah, I would think <laughs> a fully manned submarine would have plenty of individuals that would be just as uh, you know reliable and, and and trained. But I could be wrong. But this was his. M- absolutely uh i got i did it again <laughs> anyway um but this was his moment uh to uh to prove himself to the captain by saving the captain and i know that's always gonna happen and it always makes me cringe and i'm gonna have a star trek moment here for if you will give me the pleasure why does the captain of the ship feel the need to go on the dangerous mission outside of the ship? Yeah. Um, one of the greatest things that ever happened in science fiction and fantasy was when on Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, 
Riker actually said out loud that I am not letting you go on away missions because you're the captain and you're supposed to stay exactly. here. <laughs> so why, oh why, oh why, after show, after movie, after whatever, <laughs> do they keep letting the captain go outside? Because to play? he's supposed to be the hero. <laughs> he's got to be the action man. Yeah, couldn't you have? Couldn't you have sent Frankie Avalon? Yeah. <laughs> And why didn't you? He was the younger guy. He's the lieutenant. That's kind of more of his yeah, role, you would think. lieutenant junior grade. I mean, that's practically, as far as the Navy go, that's red shirt material, right? <laughs> <laughs> Damn right. <laughs> the only thing is the petty officer that was going to go with him. <laughs> but yeah, I, I'm, always, I'm always amazed. At, and, and I get it. They're the act. They're they're the top billing actors and all that. They got to be in the scenes, but those things start; those little things start to tweak me. Just like smoking on board. Yes, lots of smoking on board the ship. Holy crap! Nelson couldn't stop smoking <laughs> to the point he set his own cabin on fire. Or did he? Or did he? Dun dun dun. <laughs> Like I said, this is a dun 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 movie because uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that uh, this is where Walter Pigeon was. Uh, I mean, he's effective in that. Um, is he crazy? Is he not? It, um, he could sow enough doubt in in how he was playing the role to say, "I was out. I was out of cigars, so somebody did this," and. He says it with enough authority and enough weight that, yeah, maybe, maybe he didn't just burn himself down. So that that's for me in this movie the kind of the saving grace uh, is that uh, he is able to carry that whole is he isn't he thing uh, throughout. Yeah, I think that's the saving grace of this film, period, is just the, the level of actors and the fact that they have a really great set in order to play on. The story is not the star of this movie. Uh, the story is almost, like I said, it's it's television-worthy. Uh, it's just sort of... It's not the best. It's a little uneven, to say the least. Can I tell you what I really felt while I was uh, watching this uh, with the very uh, more current films in mind? This felt like a Michael Bay film of 1961. Okay, interesting. Just uh, less explosions? I, well, yeah, just less explosions. But, I mean, it's a, uh, it, it's a special effect film. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they were carrying their best at the time. Uh, it was big hype for the military. Please see the military in all its grandeur. Uh, and there was there was world-ending events going on, uh, but it's all attacked with as much fluff as possible. Yeah, yeah. It felt like a 1961 Michael Bay film. Almost maybe more of a... I was just thinking it was actually reminds me more of a um, Roland Emmerich kind of thing where... You've, it, this it the world yeah. the world is about to end, but fortunately we've got a laptop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I I could see a bit of that. Yeah, yeah, that's especially when you get 
to the end. Yeah, and talk about the end. Um, it It's just the end. Oh, it worked. Great. <laughs> let's shake hands and let's completely forget that you literally were just tried to take me, <laughs> tried to take my command. <laughs> I, I have to tell you, uh, the the evening that I try that I was watching this, um, I had a busy day. I was tired, so as I'm watching this, uh, toward the end of the movie, I'm getting a, a little drowsy, and I dozed off. Um, I'm thinking I dozed off with like a good fifteen twenty minutes left in the film. Because I distinctly remember Alvarez having his his moment where he's trying to standoff stop. Uh-huh. Yeah, the standoff. He's stopping Nelson from achieving his goal. Lee has uh, decided he is trying to remove him from authority. All of this is going down at once. I am thinking, okay, I've missed about fifteen minutes. Uh, I've woken back up. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm about to start back over at that point so that I can. Uh, I can see what was the amazing climax and how we've wrapped this up. I had literally missed only 60 seconds of the film. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I had dozed off when I got back to that point. Uh, Yes, uh, Lee has somehow managed to get outside the ship, get the rocket launched with one of the uh, little... uh, Remote timer um, things, yeah. Yeah, uh, the the clear... um, plot point that they play placed yes. the plot device they placed earlier in the film when they visited the weapons room mm-hmm. um he he pulls this off the rocket goes up explodes everybody shakes hand end of movie yep that's it <laughs> i'm like what <laughs> like where's the rest of the movie <laughs> It is actually, I would consider it kind of an unsatisfying ending. You think? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was a little taken aback even this time watching. I didn't remember that it ended that abruptly, which isn't, (laughs) it's not out of the ballpark for a 1960s film. There are so many, I mean, many of the monster movies and everything that I love are very much like that. Ah, we destroyed the monster. The end. Whoa. Uh, oh, okay. Even from, yeah, even from our last conversation, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, as amazing a film that that was, it did also still just end mm-hmm. very abruptly. It's like Nemo's dead. Okay, we're out. Yeah, see it. Um, yeah, and this one, this one even. <laughs> There was a, a forty car pileup behind how hard this one jackknifed. Jeez, <laughs> I mean, yeah, this was a film where you were kind of hoping, you kind of almost you you wanted that sort of, and this is okay. Here comes a scientist that gives you the little the message, you know, like oh well, if we're not careful, another disaster like this or something, you know, you you wanted some closure, some speech. I would have taken a Roger Corman wrap up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, that that would have done. <laughs> so, somebody just talked me down. You learned too late that man is a feeling creature. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, even a couple of lines would have <laughs> would have helped ease this one. I'm like, wow. <laughs> and, uh, seriously, with uh, it was too laughable to just know that I had dozed off for only sixty seconds. <laughs> 
and I I missed it. <laughs> I honestly think you know it's funny. Um, it I guess season two just ended, and they have announced that season three is going to come and be the last. But the Lost in Space on uh, Netflix, I think it is. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, reimagining of another Irwin Allen, you know, franchise. And it's done in a very serious tone, you know. It 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 it's more of a the, the episodic where you know one goes into one episode goes into the next episode and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. I could see Voids to the Bottom of the Sea. In fact, I could see this story play out as like a season arc and be able to be done really well. And then second season, you could deal with the aftermath and the effects of what happened in this first season. Because you've got a world that's been burning at 160 degrees or whatever for like almost a month. That's going to have effect on people. You know, that's going to, you, you've got the half the crew that left the ship, you know, to take, to try their luck on with the yacht and everything. There are elements of this that you could make a series out of and actually make it a really tense and interesting drama. Interestingly enough, um, and as much as I just uh, bagged on uh, Michael Bay, um, he actually had a series, um, I believe it was on TBS or TNT, called The Last Ship. Oh, right, right. That played out like a a series version of what just happened um with voyage to the bottom of the sea oh okay interesting um, i i it's a series uh, i know of i've never i had never seen any of it but i i knew about it i knew that it existed yeah the first uh the first and that's the feeling i had during this which is uh um this was a much bigger story with lots of potential and um, since it had been so long since I've seen it and I didn't remember most of it, I got deeply intrigued when, okay, they're testing this new sub and then they go under, they come up, uh, they're finally within, um, radio range again and they find when they surface to, to radio back, uh, the sky is on fire and, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, wow, this is amazing. Like, there's a big story here. And interestingly enough, that last ship uh, series, at least I only really saw the first season. But the idea was a ship went on an Arctic expedition. (laughs) It had been essentially out of radio contact. uh, And then when they come back into radio contact a couple months later, a virus has essentially wiped out a good hunk of the population. Um, and they're the one, and because they haven't been exposed, they're the one that have the opportunity to solve the problem. Mm. So, um, and it had that feel. I'm like, I'm drawing the comparison, but uh, that got the opportunity of a lengthy series to kind of play out its tail and really character develop, whereas this one and done right. until they did their series, which was not going to take the material any deeper than they did. Would you consider, uh, just because it's a submarine, uh, in a submarine adventure, would you consider, uh, the series Sequest kind of the loose remake of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea? Uh, yeah, I, I, w- I think so. In fact, uh, the, the, the whole uh, concept that this is a state of an art uh submarine none like it ever existed before 
um, the idea that uh, it's essentially piloted by the guy that designed the thing. The sense of adventure that they were on, the potential that was there. I mean, Sequest never really got to the whole way the Earth is going to boil over. But uh, um, but yeah, uh, yeah, I could definitely see a, a direct correlation mm-hmm. between Sequest and... I don't think you could have Sequest without having a voyage to the bottom of the sea. Yeah, fair enough. I think definitely, um, it certainly would give you the opportunity to, at least you can say that, oh, this is kind of like Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, instead of saying, oh, this is Star Trek underwater. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, you're always going to be able to draw those comparisons. Uh, Anything involving a ship, a crew, basic naval themes exploration yeah you're gonna get that but that comes with the territory of science fiction that is true not to mention uh when something like a star trek sets a landmark everything else gets compared against yeah that's a very very good point you can't you can't help it and maybe you shouldn't i mean since this was 1961 you can't reasonably say that star trek probably didn't pull a bit from voyage to the bottom of the sea oh absolutely no i think star trek definitely pulled from the Irwin allen series completely you talk about almost all of Irwin allen's series came prior to star trek uh, of voyage to the bottom yeah. of the sea lost in space time tunnel uh land of the giants all predate star trek so yeah star trek has a lot to thank Irwin allen for Definitely. Uh, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea was Erwin Allen's probably most successful series as far as it, as if you count just the season run. Uh, yeah. it, it, was, it lasted longer than any of the others, uh, followed by, I think, Lost in Space had three seasons. Yeah. Um, so Star Trek was right in there as well with you know, their, their three with seasons. Three seasons. Right. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, a lot of the same uh, subject matter that maybe. Maybe Star Trek managed in some cases to do a little bit deeper dive on than was probably explored with any of the Irwin Allen series. I think Star Trek maybe... Star Trek probably did what the Irwin Allen series could have done had they stuck with like the original premise of the series versus like in Lost in Space where it just, just de-evolves into and now we're going to fight the carrot monster. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it just, Irwin Allen always deferred on the side of Goofy. Yeah. Uh, very light, very flip, don't take me seriously, don't, we're not going to focus on the deep dive into the human experience uh, as well as we could. Well, and I don't know how much of it is his fault versus, you know, he's in it to make money, he's in it to sell product sure. to studios, and the Fact is, these series, like I was saying with Lost in Space, it starts out very much kind of cloak and dagger. It's a suspense. It's a spy thriller kind of thing in that first season. And then even in second season, but in this, but it gets a little bit more fanciful in the second season because that's when you get introduced to the flying sub. And so you've got that thing going on. And then the third and fourth season, that's where I'm saying it starts going into the creature of the week. And, yeah. and suddenly it's like, well the kids want to watch it and you know the kids aren't interested in you know the spy stuff anymore everyone wants you know the everyone wants aliens or or, or something like that right. and that's what you have to give them uh, well yeah because uh but you gotta figure uh at the start of this so 1961 
we aren't in the space race yet. Not then. Right. But by the time you're doing the series, and by the time that series is progressing, you're deep in the space race. So you're you're getting that transition into over from from spy to sci-fi. Right. Yeah, which, you know, it's probably unfortunate that they're all a product of their time. Um I think Erwin yes. Allen actually maybe maybe he was too ahead of his time, honestly. I think he could have done a better job had he been able to produce series kind of like in the in the Renaissance era of sci-fi in the late 80s and early 90s. Can you imagine, mm. you know, if he could have taken these ideas and the technology and everything that was at his disposal, uh, like we saw with um, ne- Next Generation and Babylon 5 and then you know, the latter Trek series, mm. I, I definitely think we would have seen some really interesting stuff come out of his his pen. Yeah, and as we, yeah, and those are the things you got to take into account. Uh, as we critique, as we share our thoughts and feelings on these things, um, you can never totally divorce the fact that, as you pointed out, the, these are there to make money. These, this is a, this is a business, and Hollywood and TV at the time, uh, they ruled with an iron fist. This, they only wanted to make what at least whoever was running the studio at the time thought would actually get as much money as they possibly could. Right. So that had way too much impact on that. Um, I even dare say, uh, while you're talking late 80s, early 90s would have been great, imagine bringing him into now mm-hmm. uh, when you can get your stuff made anywhere and you can do it however you want to do it. Yeah, uh, back in the 60s, I mean, there was few, if any, producers or directors that could do, that the studio would give them a blank check. Or the studio would just right. do, hey, you do whatever you want because you're incredible. Because you did this, you made us all this money. That really, that, that didn't happen, especially when it came to television. I, I just, I don't think that... For- existed then it did no there's no way that it did and even for those that they thought like let's face it there were really only a handful of people that would constantly produce anything during those time that time period and even though they knew they would get successful runs from these people they still never cut that blank check that just said here go do what you want to do right it was never going to happen there you were never going to get a level of artistry uh, like you could now. So it, as you're pointing out, imagine taking the the thought, the writing, the creativity that there was potential there and bringing it into a time like now when you could just do whatever you wanted. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I, I dare say you could see something like like you're pointing out with the new Lost in Space series, which actually I find to be very amazing. I saw the first season. Yeah, I saw the first season, and I was like, I was surprised how much I was like, oh, okay, this is actually interesting. I like this. You need to dig in the second, then. Yeah, that's uh, what I've heard. Yeah. Time for another... uh, It didn't lose anything. Time time (laughs) for another uh, free trial on Netflix there. (laughs) Uh, but yeah, I, I definitely continue that. But I mean, but think about that. This is a man that he created these things and people were able to take so much more out of it now. So 
I could even envision a version of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Granted, I'd like to see the title change. Again, (laughs) (laughs) Um, to talk about how how flip it was, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea sounds so fanciful for what the topic of this film was. Mm. I mean, this is an earth-ending event with a a single-minded intellectual in absolutely sure that he has the solution to the world's problem and we called it the voyage to the bottom of the sea well it sounds adventurous and that's what it was you know being sold as you know so sure uh, uh, yeah I, I i know what they were going for but uh i i think it did a dis disservice to what what there was potential to this was this could have been a way more serious and actually very interesting film. Not that it wasn't fun, but there was a lot of potential that we just didn't get yeah, to But see. unfortunately, that interest and that potential that we're talking about isn't the stuff in 1961 that was going to get people into no. the theaters. You needed this to wait true. another... You needed another wait. You needed to wait another decade at least, or so. Uh, you needed to wait for like a, after Kubrick's uh, did his thing with two thousand one. <laughs> that's about. The, that's when you could do a undersea submarine adventure and actually do some sort of serious commentary. Very true, but uh, it actually begs the question: Do the executives uh, that make the decisions for these things shape? Are they the ones that make the decision that the audience can't take this, or did the audience not really, at that time, were they ready for something more? That's the question. Um, I don't have an answer. But. No, I don't. I don't either. The closest answer I could come up with is maybe you know six of one, half dozen of the other. I I, I think the studio probably didn't give their audience enough credit, but I think the audience. This was the kind of still the drive-in generation and everything. You you didn't go to the movies for uh, what's the word introspection? Yes, thank you. You you went to for escapism and for fun and for flair and for bright lights and excitement and pretty people and you know that's and that's what the producers were trying to give them. So. As you say that, uh, I'm also probably the most forgiving uh, of a great many um, uh, series and film when it comes to that. Because that's what I'm looking for, too. I'm looking for the escapism. But uh, imagine if we had the time, the research facilities. Uh, I would love to see if there's a, a different script for this. Oh, interesting. Like A working script, yeah. Yeah, it, it, or at least uh, what were the base materials that started this? What was the story that all of these things start written in some other capacity before they become their screenplays? Mm-hmm. So um, I'd love to read through what was the the thing that germinated what became this film, and I'd be curious how different that was to what we ended up getting yeah that would be very interesting that that might be worth some googling uh, i'm sure there's you know a fan base out there strong enough that if it existed if it still exists it's it's accessible someone's got it so 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 dear listeners if you have <laughs> streams into that christopher and i uh don't have all the time in the world to find these things so but it doesn't mean that we don't want to know about them exactly so 
dig them up and send them our way. <laughs> yeah, please do. Well, I think that we've said all that we can say about Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. I still enjoyed it. You know, I that's what it boils down to, and that's why I, I don't mind it, is I, I still enjoyed the film. No, it is not groundbreaking in many ways <laughs> or anything, but and I could probably find more dents and dings in it than pluses, but it's still an enjoyable film. So I had fun watching it and had a fun discussing it. Like I said, I'm going to be always the most forgiving of a great many things because uh, it's one thing I, I always go back to uh, Ratatouille uh, and the, <laughs> the, the critique always at the end of the movie pointing out how um, it's so much easier to to put something down and critique it than it is to create. Mm-hmm. This was a creation that was worth watching. It, it is fun. The flaws in it make it just that much more fun at this stage. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that that stupid abrupt ending, while it didn't make for a great film, I'm never going to forget <laughs> <laughs> how, how this climactic m- movie uh, <laughs> ended like that. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, And it makes it fun. So uh, that's why we watch film. That's why we talk about film. It's uh, it's the moments that we enjoy. So I enjoyed it. It's just not an amazing film. <laughs> right. Anyway, Tom, thanks for uh, very much for joining me for the show and, um, and, and, and for watching the film. And I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. No, it was, a, it was great to revisit that. Uh, it was a lot of fun. So uh, we'll talk to everybody in a couple weeks. Thanks very much for joining us, and uh, that's it. Bye, all. See you.